would love for you to join me this morning and kind of play along with me. I've observed um, recently, really through the years, that there are a lot in, in pop culture, there are a lot of dynamic duos. So I'm going to give a name. I'm going to say blank and blank. And you've on the, there's a rhythm to this, okay, a cadence to it. So on the downbeat, you fill in the blank as you know them. I practiced this at home last night. My wife batted 1,000. My 12-year-old got like three of them. So pitching this, I guess, a little bit to the older crowd. Okay, just some dynamic duos throughout history. Okay, you guys ready out loud? You'll, you'll fill in the blank with me here. Batman and Abbott and Bert and Jack and Romeo and Laverne and Starsky and Sonny and Beavis and No, don't say it in church. Tweedledee and Dumb and Cheech and Probably other words you shouldn't say in church. We just said Cheech and Chong at the 9.30, right? There are a lot of dynamic duos in popular culture. Bonnie and Clyde, we could, we could keep going, couldn't we? There are also a lot of dynamic duos in Scripture. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, David and Goliath, Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah, Mordecai and Esther, Moses and Aaron, Joshua, Joshua and Caleb, on and on throughout Scripture, we're presented with some dynamic duos. And this morning, as we talk about discipleship that develops me, I would love for you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to look at a dynamic duo that through the years I've really been inspired by, Paul and Timothy. Have you had somebody to speak into your life? One person, several people, for me, I really look back, and in retrospect, I see how God ordained people, and he put them in my life. I remember my youth director, we were on a student trip one time, and we were going to sleep in tents, and he looked over at me as I was looking up at the, at the top of my tent, and he said, Robert, you're obnoxious, and you talk too much. I needed that. I needed to hear that, and that was the same guy who gave me my very first public speaking opportunity. I remember in college, a guy named Jack McGill Disciple me. I didn't know it at the time, but he began to see things in me and draw it out and call it out in my life and gave me opportunity after opportunity. He was the first person to look at me as a college freshman and say, Robert, you need to get out of Starkville. You need to travel. You need to expand your horizon. I remember when I lived in South Florida, we led a ministry, a conjunctive ministry with college, college ministry and athletes in action. And the leader of Athletes in Action was a man named Steve DeBartolabe. And some of you heard me talk about Steve and his wife, Arlene. They had a home on 1510 Delgado Avenue. And they, they were faithful. They just put down their roots. They cultivated the soil. They ministered to people. And I remember one time when a hurricane was coming through, a literal hurricane was coming through Miami. And we were expecting about 300 students to come to this meeting. And I was the, I was the one leading the meeting. And because of the hurricane, and probably they heard that I was speaking, only four people showed up. So when you go from expecting hundreds to only having four people show up, you kind of dial it down. In fact, I dialed it down so much, all we did was just hang out. I didn't share the word. We didn't have any spiritual conversation. We just sat there and looked at each other. They probably saw, uh, to some level, my disappointment. But after that, I remember when Steve sat down with me. I was a young man in ministry. He said, Robert, no matter who's there, be faithful. In fact, I think he even quoted from Paul who told Timothy, preach the word in season 
and out of season. Don't worry about the numbers. Don't worry about the crowd. Don't count success in the, in the, like the eyes of the world, but be faithful. I've had people speak into my life. I could go on and on. Maybe you could. And here we see a dynamic duo in Scripture. Paul speaking into the life of Timothy. And this morning as we look at discipleship that develops me, I would like us to read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. i got to figure out this new venue and get out of some of y'all's way. Here we go. 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The first words of this passage gives us a description of the relationship. Paul, an older man, Timothy, a younger man. You can see the mentoring. You can see that discipleship. When I was in college, someone told me everybody ought to have a Paul and everybody ought to have a Timothy. Do you get that? You need someone who speaks into you, pours their life into you. Paul said, I pour out my life as a drink offering. I I pass this on to you. We're called as disciples, as followers of Jesus, not just to be church attendees, but to pour out our lives and to pass on what we know and how we grow. Pour out and pass on. Hey, Timothy, this is what I, this is what I expect of you. We see this relationship, this father-son relationship. Fatherlessness is a crisis in America today. It's really important for us to realize the value of fathering. But the bedrock, the foundation of it all, is God being our Father. And I've learned through the years, preaching sermons in front of crowds and sitting with people counseling in my office, that that very word Father, it conjures up different emotions, doesn't it? And for some of you, your hearts flutter and you think of good things. For others, it can be a great source of deep pain. God wants to be your Father. Romans 8, the great theologian, the Apostle Paul said... He has adopted us as his sons and as his daughters. We're heirs of all things through Christ Jesus. Galatians 4 talks about this same idea of being adopted as sons. And the Spirit, he fathers us through his Spirit. And that Spirit cries out in our hearts, Abba, Abba, Father. Psalm 68 gives us this idea that God cares for the fatherless, for those who are orphans. He draws them in and calls us to care for the fatherless. And we see here, before we get to the subject of multiplication, we see validation. We see an older man, again, speaking into the life of a younger man and validating him. Look what he says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 22. He says this, But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of of the gospel. Lead that up just for a little bit. 
Because for all of us, God has created us with ambition. God has created you, listen, whether you're male or female, he has created you to prove yourself. He has created you to be validated. And God puts people in your life to bring that validation. What's a young boy like who doesn't have a father? In October of 2002, some of you remember we were... We were in California about to move to Mississippi. I remember this well. But a region, our nation's capital, a region was gripped with fear. A nation watched in horror as people were gunned down. People were gunned down. Most of them were pumping gas. Any of you remember this? And they said, look for a white van. It's, somebody's in a white van and they're just, it's a sniper and somebody's taking out folks pumping gas. And in Washington, D.C., in our nation's capital, schools closed, people stayed indoors, nobody wanted to get gas. And later they learned that two men, John Muhammad, 42 years old, and Lee Boyd Malvo, 18, were this duo, not in a white van, but in stolen cars, went on a murderous rampage. And when they were finally captured, um, several weeks later, they were convicted. And John Muhammad, the 42-year-old, was sentenced to death, and he was executed in 2009. Lee Boyd Malbo, the 18-year-old, was spared execution, and he sits in a prison in, uh, in Maryland now. Here's what this young man penned from a prison cell. Why am I here? There seems to be nothing for me. I've had a hard life. No father and a mother who hated me. All I ask is to be loved. Reports, those who did the investigation as they traced their steps. And if I remember this right, nine were killed in D.C. and one was killed in Baton Rouge. But reports and the investigative reports indicate that the 42-year-old John Muhammad would introduce the 18-year-old Lee Boyd Malvo as his son. And the young man would refer to him as his father. You see, it's in the heart of every young person to be fathered, to be mothered, to be parented, to be loved. And this man, this young man in the making, without a father, without a mother, without a caring mentor, he opened up his life to an opportunistic, ruthless killer. It's in the heart of every young person to be validated. I'm not a trained clinical therapist or counselor. I have friends who are. And they talk to me repeatedly, many times over, about how you and I, we get into adulthood and we haven't gotten past this, that sense of validation. If you have an open Bible, some of you do, look at chapter 1. We read the first seven verses of chapter 2, but if you look at chapter 1, and I believe it's in verse 6, Paul talks about fanning the flame of the gift which is in you. By what? By the laying on of hands. Now, look up here real quick. Laying on of hands, when you touch someone, there can be violation, and that's evil. But there is a laying on of hands, there is a touching of someone that's not a violation, but it's a validation. Have you ever been in a situation where there was the spoken word and there was a touch and it meant something to you? It was, it was validating. 
when I was a young man, I walked the aisle of my church and I stumbled to the preacher and I said through tears, God is calling me into the ministry. There was in that season a laying on of hands. Why? To fan the flame of the gift maybe that God was giving me. When I went to my first stateside summer mission project with Campus Crusade for Christ, there were people in my life in a small group, and before I left, they laid their hands on me to pray for me. It was validation and preparation. When I was ordained into the gospel ministry as a young adult, there was a ceremony, and there was the laying, an, laying on of hands to fan the flame of the gift that God was giving me. When we moved to launch Fondren Church five years ago, there was a team of people who did that very th same thing, the laying on of hands. Recently, going through a difficult stretch, of a lot of discouragement, of feeling like a failure, of wanting to quit, of just being really low, I called some friends, some men that I really love and care for, and what's so cool is they love and care for me. And they know what's at stake, and we gathered, and they, what did they do? They didn't sit at a distance looking at their screens. They circled me, surrounded me, and they put their hands on me. There was the laying on of hands. There was this validation of God's call in my life. Two weeks from tonight, Brad Dorman, some of you know, he senses God's call in his life as a recent graduate of Reformed Theological Seminary to go and to plant a church. And I'll be one of several guys that will be speaking at his ordination service. And I bet you there will be a laying on of hands to say, God, this is your work. This person, this man is coveting, coveting with you. Fan the flames. Now, the next verse, I think even quoted this last week in, in 1-7 of 2 Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Why do we need words of validation? Why do we need the laying on of hands? Why do we need to circle up with each other and say, here's the work that God is doing in your life because we're cowards, because we lack courage, because we so often capitulate and acquiesce to that spirit of, of, of timidity. I wonder, I'm looking at some of you, and I wonder what is God calling you to? What new door of opportunities is he opening up in your life? What does he want to flame, fan in your life? What flame does he want to fan in your own life? Are you giving yourself over to fear? Or do you realize the gift that he's given you in Jesus is power and love and a sound mind? Walk through that door. Do what God has called you to do in season, out of season, when you're excited, when you're fearful, no matter the mood, no matter the circumstance, let God fan the flame in you. He's given you a gift. Use that gift. Discover it. Deploy it. Be who God has made you to be. Paul says in Philippians 4, I don't have this on the, past, on the, on the screen, but listen to this. Paul says, in, also in Philippians, he says, the things that you have learned from me, received from me, heard in me, seen in me, practice these things. Learn, receive, hear, see. Play a game with me. This is our second crowd participation. We're going to play Simon Says, okay? Everybody understands that game, needs no explanation. I want you to do it with me. Simon Says, touch your shoulder. Simon Says, touch your other shoulder. Simon Says, touch your head. Simon says, touch your ear, any ear. Simon says, touch your other ear, the one you didn't touch. Simon says, touch your other ear. 
okay? Some of you, some of you touched your nose, right? You do what you see. It's important to hear and to receive. It's important to learn. But modeling is where it's at. We see what we do. Pray for our church. Pray for every spiritual leader in our church. I covet your prayers. Paul was able to say, not I'm a perfect man. Paul didn't say I'm up on a lofty pedestal. Everything is together. In fact, he said this is a trustworthy statement and worthy of full acceptance. I am the chief among sinners. I don't think that meant necessarily that Paul had all these terrible sins and they were more numerous than others. I think Paul had a sense of his, of his unworthiness, of the holiness of God and the gap between his unholiness and God's, un, God's holiness. But Paul was able to say because he was a growing disciple, he was a learner and he was putting it into practice. And his life was impacted, particularly by a man named Barnabas. And he was able to say, the things that you learn from me, the things that you receive from me. He would say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 7, we don't just share the gospel of God with you, we share our own lives. And you know that, don't you? If you're growing as a disciple of Jesus, it's probably because, not because someone invited you to church, but because someone invited you into their lives. My child, my son. He starts there in this stretch, and then he says, the things that you've heard from me, you entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Here's this multiplication. You see, when you convert somebody, the kingdom grows by one. But when you disciple someone who disciples others, the kingdom grows by dozens, if not hundreds. Let me give you the stretch. If you were to do a chart, it could look like this. Barnabas, Paul, Timothy, others, faithful men, others who receive from those faithful men, the church at Ephesus, and then that church led to other churches like Sardis and Smyrna and Philadelphia and Laodicea. You can read about those churches in the New Testament, particularly in Revelation chapter 2. And I stop and I wonder, what could God do in our church if we were with him and we were with others and we sought to not just convert people or to have people walk an aisle or say a prayer, but we look to build into other people that as we learn the Jesus way of life, we would seek to, to be receptive and open to those who are faithful and available and teachable and to truly impart that to other people. Do you have somebody speaking into your life? Do you have someone who you're pouring your life into? You see three analogies that Paul gives when he talks about discipleship, when he talks about being a learner and follower of Jesus, of taking on the Jesus way of life. He talks about a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. We, we read that. And, in a soul, and when he talks about a soldier, he mentions a few things. He says a soldier um, shares in suffering. A soldier uh, doesn't get entangled with civilian pursuits. And a soldier ultimately and singularly seeks to please the one who has called him. I'm reading a book, just about finished, a book by a Navy SEAL. I don't know why I'm the furthest thing from a Navy SEAL there is, but I'm enjoying reading this book. It's inspiring me. I went camping a, a, last week, a couple of weeks ago, and realized how soft I am. So I, I guess I'm reading a book by a Navy SEAL. I want to I go tougher as a man. I'm just too soft. 
And in this book, he talks about three different mindsets. The naive mind imagines endless success. The cowardly mind imagines hardship and quits. But the resilient mind imagines hardship and pushes through. That reminds me, as I read from this Navy SEAL, it reminds me of what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 14. When someone goes into battle, what do they do? They prepare themselves. They, they count the cost to see if they have what it takes to, like Gatorade, to see if it is in you. And a soldier what? A soldier realizes a soldier's not naive. A soldier is not a coward. A soldier is resilient. He looks ahead, imagines the hardship, but says, we're going to push through. Paul would later tell Timothy, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's in chapter 3 and verse 12. All those who live a godly life. Now, if you just want to fit into the world and be the dead fish that floats downstream, if you want to live like everybody else lives, hey, you could probably avoid some persecution. But all that live godly in Christ Jesus will face hardship, will face persecution. A soldier what? A soldier shares in the suffering. A soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs. A soldier seeks to please the one who has called him. I share with you often, one of my struggles is being a people pleaser. Anybody else struggle with that smile or wave or nod or point at yourself? That'll just help me not feel so lonely up here. But I have a hard time saying no. We actually have someone here on staff that's part of what she does. She's paid to help me say no to things. And my wife is getting better at that as well. But I'm just, a, I'm just a people pleaser. And too often, I'm driven by the currents. Too often, I think too much about the crowd. Uh, too often, praise lifts me too high or criticism takes me too low. And that's, that's the darkness of my own heart. That's a sin in my own life. But a soldier, a good soldier, a, a discipler, a disciple of Jesus who's discipling others, seeks to ultimately please one. And can I tell you, when I'm leaning in that direction and seeking to please one, that is so freeing. Some of you probably, you know that naturally. I envy you, actually. But I'm, my life is so liberated and so free when I'm just seeking to please the one who has ultimately called me. When I was 18, I went to San Diego one summer. It was when top, the Top Gun movie was out. And I was young, and I had one of those, uh, Terrell, I had one of those bomber jackets, you know, trying to be like Tom. You would, it'd be a good look for you. I couldn't really pull it off. But I was out in San Diego on a mission project. And one particular week, these 85-plus uh, college students and staff went across the San Diego border to the community of Tijuana in Mexico. And we were talking all week in preparation for this, that we were going to the dump. We're going to go to the dump and we're going to minister to people who live and work for Jesus on the dump. And I thought the dump, I didn't really know much about the dump. I, I wasn't paying attention. I, you know, there's the hump in Starkville. And I thought, hey, this is somewhere cool. It's kind of a slang name. And let me tell you what I learned right when I got there is the dump is aptly named. It's this huge mountain of garbage and sewage and the only homes around there where tons of people live are made of wood and mud and metal. But we interacted with some people who felt the call to live and minister there. 
to see the hungry be fed, to see the poor be relieved, to see the victims be released from that, to see the oppressed be liberated. That was their calling. And can I tell you, they radiated with joy. On the way home, we stopped at an island that some of you have heard about. It's called Coronado Island. It's, it's the lap of wealth and luxury in that part of the world. There are few communities as sparkling and nice as this one. And at a coffee shop, a bagel shop, I remember walking out and there was a woman who was decked out in fine clothes and jewelry hopping into a really nice Rolls Royce and she was yelling at the man in the bagel shop. It was a full-fledged fight. And I remember looking at kids and people there just seemed to be, even though they were in the lap of wealth and luxury, they seemed to be spoiled and unhappy. And all these years I look back and that very stretch, that very week makes me think, what are we living for? Is it us and our stuff? Are you being sidetracked by what Paul says here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, civilian pursuits? Who are you living for? What are you looking at? What's the focus of your life? Jesus in Mark chapter 3 calls the 12 to him. He says, come and follow me and what? Do you know the next line? Come and follow me and I will what? I will make you fishers of men. Some people are takers and some people are makers. Jesus calls you to be a maker, to be a what? As you fish for men, you will be a maker of disciples. You'll be a builder, not a destroyer. And Jesus essentially gives three ideas in Mark chapter three that I think Paul is, is in lockstep with. He says, be with me, learn from me. Now, as the rabbi, he wanted people to know that students learn a subject, right? Students learn a subject, but an apprentice learns a skill, a skill for living. And as a rabbi, he didn't just want his disciples to learn a subject and get it right on the theology quiz. He wanted his followers, these men that he poured his life out to and that he said pass on. He wanted them to learn skill, the skill of intersecting the good news of the gospel as it related to money, sex, the poor, power, all things. In life, there was no separation between the sacred and the secular with Jesus, and that contradicted the Greek culture that he penetrated. Jesus says, Be with me. In fact, that's my plan. What is Jesus' plan to reach the world? We get so caught up in conversations about the type of churches that we have. Do we meet in the gym or the sanctuary? Are we a large church or a small church? Are we, a, you know, are we? A contemporary church or a traditional church, we get so caught up in those things. Praise choruses or hymns, soft or loud. Those are the things stylistically that we talk about. But Jesus had a simple plan, no matter how it's fleshed out, his plan to reach the world and to impact others with the good news was the be with plan. Be with me. Learn from me. And then those who were with him were sent out. And the third thing beyond being with him and being sent out he says, exercise authority. Exercise authority over evil. They cast out demons. We're called to confront evil. 
Do you know that Jesus taught that as disciples, as followers of him? We don't just share good news, but we oppose the forces that are, that are against the good news. We have to stand. We are in a battle. Paul is teaching here about being a soldier, and he's teaching us what Jesus taught, that we are in a spiritual battle. Now, here's what I want to say in a political climate that's really charged up. Sometimes we say, well, there's a battle for the Bible. There's a, a tussle for the Ten Commandments. We're spatting about prayer in schools and this and that. And you know, as believers, we've lost our favored nation status in the world that we live in today. And the response for many of us, including people of my ilk, people who stand on a platform and preach, the response too often is what? Anger. It's an angry reaction. And we think we're being soldiers in, an, in a loud and obnoxious way. We're called to, to take a stand. And Paul would say in the same letter, he would say, be gentle. Know how you ought to answer every person. Do not be quarrelsome. We have to be wise in following Jesus and to realize what the weapons of our warfare are. In Ephesians 6, he would say, we battle not against flesh and blood. See, we want to fight with people, don't we? And Paul says, it's not against people. It's against principalities and powers. It's against the evil forces. Be a soldier. Be an athlete. I won't say much for the sake of time and, the, and for the sake that the Olympics are happening right now. But what he says here, Paul says what? An athlete what? Competes for the crown, but has to compete according to the rules. Every Olympic athlete, and where are we on gold now? 40 or on medals, 42, whatever. We're, we're, we're crushing the world. 42 is total medals, I think. But all those medals only bring joy to every woman, to every man who, what, who competes according to the rules. And take that and take Lance Armstrong. He could kill it on the cycle. When I was in Colorado at 12,000 feet last week, I wish I had Lance Armstrong's lungs and his legs. Seven Tour de France titles, the Live Strong campaign, the yellow bracelets, but then rumors of misconduct, allegations of wrongdoing, rumors of doping began to spread. Denial, denial, denial. And he didn't just passively denial, deny. He went on the attack. He attacked others who said he threw lawsuits their way. And then he sat down, not with Jesus, but with Oprah. You'll remember. And he had this interview, right? And it was so painful to watch. And Lance Armstrong, in essence, had to own up. And Lance Armstrong said, one who accomplished so much, who was seeing it just drift into meaninglessness. He said, I lied and I lied and I lied and I lied so many times that here, this is so painful because this is in our hearts, okay? We don't have his lungs or his legs, but we, it's in our hearts for deception. And he said, I lied and I lied so many times that I began to believe it myself. An athlete, Paul says, competes according to the rules. Soldier, athlete, and farmer. And we see here what is talked about often in Scripture. And a farmer, every time in Scripture, it mentions hard work, as Paul does here. And it mentions the hope. In 1 Corinthians 9, 10, if you're a note taker, you may want to jot that down. It says that the farmer, he who, he who threshes, he who plows, hopes to share in the first harvest. 
isn't that what a farmer does? Any farmers in the house? Anybody, the son or daughter of a farmer? You know those two, hard work and hope. You combine hard work and hope. You do your part and then you say, okay, God, universe, whatever you believe in, do your part. Hard work and hope. When Jesus talked about farming, he said the success or failure of farming is not so much the skill of the farmer or the power of the seed, it's the quality of the soil. What is the soil like in our hearts? Because there's not just the preaching of the word, there's the hearing of the word. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I planted, Apollos watered, do you know the rest? But God caused the growth. It's God that'll grow us. It's God that will grow you. You know when a tree or a plant or something on a farm is flourishing, don't you? How do you know? Let's don't get technical. How do you know? You just look and you just see, right? And the opposite of that, when something is languishing, when something's not growing, when something is dead or it's dying, you look and you see that, don't you? And Jesus says that the flourishing life is seen by its fruit. It's when you and I, and we follow him, we become capable of what he's created us to be. Don't spend your time trying to be a tree or a fruit or something that God has not called you to. Now, all of us, According to Galatians 5, we need to, we need to show fruit in our lives. Fruit needs to burst forth from us. It needs to grow out of us like love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. I need that, don't I? I need that in greater measure in my life, and so do you. But God is the one who causes that growth. And your life is different from mine. Your life is different from the person sitting next to you. If you're parenting more than one kid, their lives are different. But every disciple of Jesus, as we grow, we see different fruit. We see different expressions of that. But when something is healthy and growing, you know. You just look and you just see. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer. And in chapter 4, as Paul talked to his young protege Timothy about discipleship, about growing, he was at the end of his life. It seemed like Paul wrote a lot at the end of his life. You know, Paul was a man, and when men get older, they think about what's next, and they think about what they're going to leave behind. They hire lawyers and draw up a will and designate beneficiaries, and they think about their money and their personal property, keepsakes, collectibles, trophies, tools. What are the things that I'm going to give away? Solomon knew this. Oftentimes, we talk about what are we going to give away? What are we, what are we going to leave behind by way of wealth? But look what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Wisdom is even better when you have money. Both are a benefit as you go through life. Wisdom and money can get you almost anything, but only wisdom can save your life. What are you learning when people look at you? Are they learning from Jesus? And all the time and effort that's spent wondering what we're going to leave behind by way of possessions, what about the way of wisdom? In my pocket, is a, it's a DVD. 
Several years ago, a man gave me this, and he said, Robert, I want you to preach my funeral. And here's my life. I haven't looked at it yet. When that day comes, I'm sure I will, a couple of days before the funeral. But you could tell this man, obviously, was thinking about his legacy. And on this, I think he's recorded things that he wants people to remember about his life. As Paul talks about learning from him and entrusting these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As he, as he gives validation to this young man and as he talks about multiplication, he thinks about the end of his life. Beyond the soldier and the athlete and the farmer, he would later say in 2, Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight, I have kept the faith, I have finished the course. All those similar to the three analogies he gives us here in chapter 4. Chapter 2. Before there's a soldier, before there's an athlete, and before there's a farmer, there's a son. And that son, Paul says, is a son by grace. The bane of the American church, I think, today is that we attend services, we enter into religious activity, without the validation, without the understanding that we're loved. So today, I'm not saying to you, be a soldier, be an athlete, be a farmer, get busy for Jesus. I'm not saying any of those things before you understand that you are his son, his daughter. You're a child of God. He loves you. God wants to father you. He wants His Spirit to father you. And I believe, and some of you know this to be true, you can look back at your life as I have done mine today. He wants to put people in your life who will pour into you. Do you have somebody like that? I can't help but hope and pray that with each passing day that God gives us, we're celebrating five years, but I hope that our future I hope that our future involves discipleship that will develop you. That you'll be a part with us, whether you worship at 11 in the sanctuary, the gym at 930, who knows what God's going to do in our future, but that whatever comes our way, that you will take on Jesus' way of life and be a part of his plan, the be with plan. This week, one of our leaders, uh, still sticking around, but he's a volunteer, he says, hey, I'm going to roll off because life is busy, and it is busy. And it made me think how valuable he is to us. And it made me think how valuable all of you are as leaders in our church. And it made me think of how we need to replace ourselves. That we need a a leadership pipeline. What organization doesn't need that, right? But we need life on life where all of our leaders are pouring in to somebody else. Every critical juncture of my life since I was... 16 years old, there's been somebody there for me. Somebody older and somebody wiser. Any Karate Kid fans in the room? I'm, you know, because of my age, I'm sort of partial to Mr. Miyagi and Danielson from the original Karate Kid. They did a remake in 2010, you'll remember, with Jackie Chan. I almost said Francis Chan. Uh, Jackie Chan. (laughs) Jackie Chan. And 
Jaden Smith, Will Smith's son. Did any of you see this five, six years ago? And there's this one scene where you don't know what is happening. And Jackie Chan is in a crazy drunken state. I should say a crying drunken state. And he's sitting in the driver's seat of a car that he's just beaten with a baseball bat in his rage. Something's in there. Uh, Men, something's in us. Anger is in us. And we have to channel it, I'm telling you. And Jackie Chan beats this car. And he sits in the passenger seat, or driver's seat rather. And Jaden Smith, the young man, walks into the, into the place because it's his training session. He's the young man being trained by the older man. And he doesn't know how to act, what boy would. And he sits in the passenger seat of the car. And Jackie Chan opens up the glove compartment. And to this boy, he's, uh, he shows pictures. And he says, as he's crying and as he's drunk, he said, this is my family. And they all died in this car. Y'all remember this scene? They all died in this car. And it was my fault. And it's this just gut-wrenching scene. It's just almost too much to bear. And Jaden Smith, what a cute kid, looks like his dad. He gets up in this scene. Of course, it's Hollywood. The music's playing and you're, you're moved. And he walks around to the driver's side and he gets one of the tools, one of the tools for training that was used with him. And he, in essence, lassos the hands of Jackie Chan, pulling him out of the car into the courtyard where they begin their training session. And I thought, that's discipleship. When the trainee can look over at the trainer and he or she, they know what to do. They can offer encouragement. They know the plan. They know the mission. They know what's next. Jesus taught that way. God helped Fondren Church not to have leaders who have followers, but help us to have leaders who raise up other leaders. I stood here last week and said, as we introduced the series, as we're celebrating five years as a church, that I'm hoping and praying for worship that stirs you, discipleship that develops you, membership that cares for you, leadership that inspires you, and compassion that moves you. And I see some of you, and I see what God is stirring up in our hearts. And here's what I'm saying. We need you. And you're not paid to be here. But we need your ideas, and we need your energy. And I hope that all who are willing and receptive, that we can be a church to fan the flames of the gift which is in you. And that it can be used. Can I say it again? When, you, when one person is converted, the kingdom grows by one. But when you disciple someone who disciples others, the kingdom grows by dozens. And oh my, study. You can't do it now, but study the history of what I've taught you today. Barnabas and Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others, the church at Ephesus, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Smyrna. Us today. Validation. You are a child of God. Multiplication. Pour out your life as a child of God and learn from Him. Let's pray.